The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Dardic is my guest today on the Hero Series. Dr. Irvin Dardic is a true maverick and a thinker of vast proportions. His background includes an illustrious career as a vascular surgeon, almost a decade of work with the U.S. Olympic Committee's Sports Medicine Council, an award-winning career as an amateur sprinter, and the culmination of all of this, Dardic's formulation of superwave theory. He quoted recently, Here I present the elegant reality that is the natural universe. All existence is waves, only waves. This entirely new understanding of waves that I call super waves is the single universality that generates the entire natural universe of motion, of order and of matter, space and time. Super waves is not a theoretical model or mathematical law about nature, nor is it a hidden reality within nature. It is the simple reality that is nature. Dr. Irvin Dardic joins me today with Susan Anthony. Welcome to the Heroes series that I have the pleasure of co-creating with Dr. Susan Anthony and our special guest today, Dr. Irvin Dardic. Dr. Dardic, Dr. Susan Anthony, welcome to the program. Susie, I wonder if you could begin this program, please, by providing our listeners with an overview of Dr. Dardick's life and career before we start the 12 stages of the hero's journey. Okay, well, as a vascular surgeon, um, Dr. Dardick won the American Medical Association's prestigious Hectone Gold Medal and as founding chairman of the U.S. Olympic Sports Medicine Council, Dardick originally saw his superwave principle as a way to cause health. He designed an incredible exercise program to realign the out of sync, the stressed, and realigning us with the natural cycles of our environment to help mitigate the effects of chronic disease. Basically, his work represents, in my view, the birth 
of a new big idea in science. And it will interest everyone who's concerned with their own health and vitality, as well as all those who are curious about the fundamental workings of nature. Well, Dr. Dardick, welcome again to the Hero Series. I'd like to start with the first level in the hero's journey as mapped out by Susie Anthony, that being the ordinary world. And starting with your earlier life, uh, your involvement in competitive sports and your dreams to becoming a professional athlete. And an important question for you, Dr. Dardick, how did you become or how did you choose to become uh, involved in medicine as a career? Well, I was born, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on the uh, show. And um, I uh, am very intrigued with this kind of a um, show because usually people are asked <laughs> to come on and tell me what you did and suddenly this is how you went about doing it. Your thought process is behind all of this and it's, it gave me <laughs> food for thought as well. <laughs> But um, I actually grew up on the ocean shore in New Jersey, in Long Branch, New Jersey, where I used to spend so much of my days on the beach. I lived a block from the ocean. And I used to run on the sand. I, summer, winter, I used to go into the ocean and watch the waves. And that was, uh, I grew up with those sounds and those uh, images of uh, rhythmic, the rhythmic patterns of nature. And I took that into my high school uh, career as a runner because I was an interval wave cyclic runner. And I had good speed, and I used to love to run on the sand and then sit down and, and gasp and recover. And I'd go into the water to cool down and so on. And that was the beginning of my uh, uh, working out and um, training for uh, toward one day I was dreaming for the Olympics. I was captain of the high school track team. I won a, uh, one of the state championships, and then I went on to win to uh, compete in the, at the University of Pennsylvania uh, and became the captain of the track team there and competed internationally with my dream of going to the Olympics. But that was as a 20-year-old. <laughs> and suddenly, after my, as my college career was ending, uh, I had a choice to make. Either I went to medical school to become a physician, or I would continue to train for the Olympics. Well, back then, there was no uh, period interval in between uh, college and medical school. If you didn't train, if you didn't go to medical school, apply then. You applied because you were training for the Olympics or any sport. Forget it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't accept you. And so um, having my brother, having been being a physician and my oldest, my both brothers uh, were, were uh, doctors and, and uh, I just fell into that as a natural phenomenon. I almost grew up with it in our family thinking and I just did it. <laughs> And it was intriguing to me also because it was a whole different way of thinking about nature and life. Because as I came from being with nature, within nature, and living that way, uh, and, and uh, going to medical school where suddenly I was in an, are in an arena where there were 
uh, I was dealing with cadavers, dead bodies. For two years, I never saw a live patient as part of my curriculum. It was all working with slides and pathology and, and doing uh, anatomy and so forth. And it was quite a, um, a different way of thinking, a different way of uh, looking at, at life. I was coming from the other direction, and that was quite a challenge. I even went to, there were four other medical schools in, in Philadelphia, and I used to go to different medical schools, them not, them not knowing that I was not in their school, but I used to go there just to listen to the different um, professors giving their lectures in anatomy, chemistry, biochemistry, and so forth. And, um, but I was trying to understand why uh, and how, not only how medicine works, what, it, what you're doing, but why we look at it the way we do. And it was just intriguing. Uh, it just seemed the opposite of where we want to come from in order to understand health and disease. And finally, I went to, um, through medical school and uh, uh, was prepared for, uh, in, during my internship to go into um, medicine. Actually, I was accepted as an in, as a, um, uh, for internal medicine residency at Hahnemann Medical College in Philadelphia. When I uh, went to see my brother, who was a uh, surgical resident at Montefiore Einstein in New York City. And uh, I went to visit him during my internship, and I was prepared to go to medical school, prepared to take my um, internal medicine degree. And, uh, and as I was visited my brother, I met with the chief of surgery, Elliot Hurwitt, who spent five minutes walking around with me, sat me down in his office, and said, you're going to be a surgical resident here. I have a full staff, but I'm taking you on one way or another. And I looked at him and I said, okay. <laughs> and I did it. And uh, it was kind of unusual to uh, have to turn down an internal medicine residency after I already accepted it, but I went right on into the surgical residency uh, in order to understand what is life, what is nature, what is the nature of life and the nature of the universe. And coming from that direction rather than coming from the direction of physics, of mathematics, of looking at the microscopic completely. I was looking at life and trying to understand the complexity of it. I love the way that you define your passion and your, your bliss. And I know uh, for Susie Anthony, uh, Susie, you wish to relate this to Joseph Campbell's quotation from his work at this juncture? Yeah, for sure. I mean, what inspires me about Irv, if I can call you Irv, is I have spoken to you many times, and you can always feel the passion in your words. And Campbell said, when we follow our passion, we find our bliss, and we also find our reward, which ultimately is happiness, empowerment, and true abundance. But unfortunately, in ego, most of us, somehow compromise we ignore our passion and we perhaps never identify our bliss and live our lives in a self-created hell competing judging attacking trying to control others seeking approval from others how many people too have settled for the approximate the not quite just to pay the bill saying that when they retire or when they've got the money they'll do whatever it is they love 
But this is the anti-hero's journey, and it creates a life of bondage to self-limiting false beliefs. Yet like Irv, when we find the courage, the humility, the willingness to follow our bliss, find our passion, rather than focusing on the reward, we open up to the unknown, the special world, and that's the place where all potentialities exist. If we can surrender ourselves to our divine nature, the hero inside, a very special life opens up for us. This takes us on swiftly to the second stage, the call to adventure, or the call of adventure. And before I place my next question uh, to Dr. Dardick and his subsequent response, I believe, uh, Susan Anthony, that you have a statement that you so love that you would like to provide by Anatoly. Yeah, it's about dreaming. To accomplish great things, we must not only act, but also dream. Not only plan, but also believe. This is very pertinent to a dream that Dr. Dardick had as a newly qualified surgeon, where he received miraculous inspiration, really, about a revolutionary new medical procedure involving, of all things, the application of grafting umbilical cords in vascular surgery. With that, was there any particular catalyst or moment in your life, Dr. Dardick, that brought you to this point, this, you know, spectacular place of grafting umbilical cords, only one of your many achievements. Was there, as Susan Anthony points out, a dream behind that? Yes, there actually was. One would think as we're working in that field of vascular bypasses, trying to um, uh, put in graft materials, in order to bypass an occluded artery, whether it's in the heart or the uh, arteries going to the brain or, or into the legs, kidneys, and so forth. Um, it was a huge field, but it was, we were working uh, with plastic, Dacron grafts, uh, in order to, um, that were manufactured and put in and sutured in to bypass uh, uh, blood vessels that were occluded. And um, it was, they didn't work the way you would think, you know, think, okay, I'm just bypassing it. But there was a tremendous incidence of clotting immediately after you inserted them. Long, long term wasn't really so long term. You were happy if you could, the, the graft could remain patent for two, three, four years. Um, it was uh, very successful. And then they'd occlude and you'd have to have them come back. And, uh, or sometimes it just didn't work anymore and you'd have to do amputations and so forth, and there would be major uh, uh, crises afterwards. And um, I happened to be putting uh, a graft, such a graft, in to a woman. Uh, actually, it was the second time I was doing it. She had already occluded um, a major gra uh, graft we had put in from the uh, axillary arteries down through uh, the abdomen into the lower extremity, into the femoral arteries. And this was, and um, what that had been used was uh, by the um, 
uh, by the surgeons uh, before me uh, was a bovine graft, a um, a cow carotid a cow carotid artery actually was inserted. And I said to myself, you know, it's probably better than um, take using a Dacron graft, but it's still occluded, and uh, there must be something better. And I was thinking about it, and I began to describe to my residents who were working with me in the operating room as I was trying to figure out how to uh, open up the arteries and clean it out and so forth. And um, I said uh, to them, you know, it needs to be something that could be very, very flexible, very uh, fresh and clean and doesn't clot. I went through a whole series of what an ideal vascular bypass grafting material would be. And I said, you know, it, it would be, it should be something that, it should be something that's practically human. <laughs> and as I said that, I opened up the, the occluded artery from uh, that, uh, the bypassed artery and, this, and found that the blood had clotted in two layers, like in pl- uh, plasma. You know, the blood has, uh, let's say, 50% uh, red blood cells and the material and so forth. And the other 50%, let's say, is, is plasma, uh, is a liquid. And that liquid material had, had, was gelatinous. And I looked at it as I scooped it out. I'd never seen it quite like that before. She'd obviously been on anticoagulants and she was lying down when this whole thing had got occluded. And I pulled out some of this material and I said, you know, this reminds me of Wharton's jelly. And it hit me like a bomb. Because Wharton's jelly is the material in the umbilical cord that surrounds the inner blood vessels that are inside of the umbilical cord. And I, and I remembered when I was an intern delivering babies, and I remember a woman in the middle of the night who, who, who was in bed and suddenly delivered spontaneously, and she was standing on the bed, and the baby was already out when I ran into the fire and catch the baby, essentially. And there was this long umbilical cord, and that's what came to my mind, and I said, oh, my gosh, the umbilical cord is not only practically human, it's human. And I said immediately, I said, oh, no one has ever considered taking, removing the blood vessels, the umbilical vein inside, it's actually a vein inside, and actually using that as a bypass material. After all, it can be several feet long, and they're readily available, and they're natural. They're human. They were designed as human kind, you know, and that's where, that was our launch into the world. And I said, why not use an umbilical cord rather than a bovine carotid, a cow carotid artery, or rather than a, you know, a piece of plastic, a Dacron that you're, you're suturing on? I immediately got out of the operating room. That was, that was around four o'clock in the morning, and I called up my brother. I woke him up, and I said, you won't believe this, but I don't know what happened. He says, oh my God. And from that point, I began the process of of uh, immediately of trying to figure out where I could begin the process of actually doing this, um, working on the experimental basis, and and then being able to uh, uh, use it, and and it was quite a an a uh, aha epiphany, <laughs> uh, unbelievable when that happened. You clearly experienced failures when you were attempting to apply these visions in the ordinary world, you had this incredible perseverance and followed your 
intuition clearly and imagination as susan anthony commented earlier this was clearly a heady time for you and as you remarked in a article some time ago that it wasn't that you were working like crazy this technically beautiful procedure but that it was the fact that you were giving these people their lives back at a point where they thought that there was no hope which i'm pretty sure is an amazing uh, an amazing feat for a doctor and you continued and received professional recognition uh, the AMA bestowed upon you and fellow doctors, team members, and of course your brother, the highest honor with the prestigious Hector and Gold Medal. And it's amazing how this story evolved. Before I return to you, Dr. Dardick, uh, Susan Anthony, what is the divineness behind that at this stage when all this takes place so quickly you know, so smoothly against all the odds in this ordinary world. And yet, Dr. Dardick makes such amazing achievements occur, you know, hit backs at the institutions and really uh, takes all this imagination and, and clearly acts upon it. Well, Einstein said, the rational mind is a faithful servant and the intuitive mind is a divine gift. And we've created a society that worships the servant and has forgotten the gift. Well, clearly, Irv, our hero, hadn't forgotten the gift. He was totally unafraid to follow his intuition, and he seems to almost delight in bucking the system. And in terms of what then went on to transpire around this discovery with big shots at the hospital trying to claim ownership of the idea. I think it was probably a tough time for Irv. This whole episode saddened him because it was the first time in his experience that people in the medical profession weren't focusing on the patient's well-being. Instead, it was all about ownership of the idea and ego and who'd benefit financially, greed. So here you see very clearly the higher path of the hero and the lower path of ego, you see Campbell's two worlds very clearly defined here. The special world where magical discoveries are made possible, where we're motivated to act for the greatest good, as opposed to the ordinary world where actions come from ego, self-interest, self-aggrandizement, and greed. So that leads us perfectly into the refusal of the call and, and perhaps the, any fear that Irv may have felt when he had to confront his superiors. What was those fears, Dr. Dardick, that you experienced around that time? Um, I'm not sure it was fear as much as uh, how could this be? <laughs> how is this possible when here we are faced with all kinds of health and medical issues. We're in a hospital environment where people are coming in all the time in crisis, 
and wanting the best. And you want, you want just like in the Olympics when they uh, say you'd be the best you can be, the same thing as a physician. You want to be the best you can be, and you want to share your ideas and work with people. And, and what happened was that um, I took this idea home with me and began to collect umbilical cords from the hospital, which were available to me, and I began to dissect them and figure out what they're like and, and use different kinds of chemicals to treat them. I did this at home just to see whether it was even feasible so that we can begin, if it made sense, and we could um, stabilize the tissue so it would be strong and permanent, relatively permanent. And um, if we could get them to be able to be flexible as they are, but with the chemicals and all that. And it was working beautifully to the point where I reached a point after maybe a year or so um, that I decided it was time to try to do some experimental work in a laboratory. So I went to the... Um, Chief of Surgery, Marvin Gleedman, and, and who called in the Chief of Vascular Surgery, Frank, Frank Vieth, and I said to them, uh, I have this idea. And I expected that they would be ecstatic, <laughs> that they would really, um, you know, just turn around and say, my gosh, uh, this is a great idea. Uh, how can we work with you and help you? Get, we'll set up a lab and do whatever needs to be done. Instead, they looked at me and they had me come back. They said, we'll think about it. And I came back and they said, you know, we don't think that this is something that um, would be, would be uh, feasible. And so uh, I think you should let it go. And, th and that was a shock to me. And I said, but look, you know, I was arguing with them, but they said, no, no, we don't have the funding, we don't have the laboratory space and so forth to do that. So um, I, I said to myself, oh, okay, they, we're not going to do it. So uh, I thought about this, and I said, uh, maybe the best thing to do is not to do it here. Maybe I can find someone at another institution. I wasn't private practice at that point. I'd just come out of my residency. And I said, um, and I decided to go to NYU that had a uh, place called the Laboratory for Experimental Primates and Surgery, uh, Surgery in Primates and Animals, uh, LEMSIP it's called. Um, and I um, met with Dr. Moore Yankowski from NYU, who was the head of the lab. And I told him I had a great idea. <laughs> And I would like to be able to work with, uh, in the laboratory and planting this in their animals. I wouldn't do it today, by the way. It was in baboons, but I would not have done this today. But back then, I was in the midst of that whole medical world and, uh, and research world. And I said, I have this idea. He says, look, it's going to take, even if you have a great idea, it's going to take you six months before you can even get the animals. And then six months before we can have them stabilized here and all that. It's going to take a long time. And so I said to him, well, look, Dr. Morian Kelsey, I think this idea is so terrific that if, if you think it's this, that you yourself would think it's a great idea, that you might even give me your own animals to work with. And he looked at me and said, oh, come on. And he said, what is it? And I told him, he said, you got my animals. <laughs> and from that point on, I went immediately and began to work in the laboratory over a period of uh, about a year and a half or two. 
And we began to have great results. The, the graphs were staying patent. They were staying open. They were working beautifully. I figured out how to suture them in all the techniques. My brother and I worked on this together, Herb Dardic. And um, as we did all of this, uh, there came a point where we saw that this was something that now is time to be published. I went back to the um, chief of surgery and had a meeting with him and with uh, Frank Veef and said, look, you remember you told me this wasn't going to work. Well, I went elsewhere. My brother and I set up a lab at LEMSIP, Laboratory for Experimental Medicine, Surgery, and Primates, and uh, we worked, and we got great results, and we're now publishing a paper, and we thought it would still be desirable since we're here on the staff of Montefiore, Einstein, as well as NYU. Um, I was made a senior research scientist there to do this work. And um, I would like to put Montefiore, Einstein's name on the paper along with NYU and LEMSIP. And they looked at me and said, no. Uh, and uh, Frank turned around and said, I've been doing work on the umbilical cord all these years, myself. I've been doing this. It was something that I came up with. I've been working in the pulmonary arena, working with umbilical vessels. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and I was thinking about it. And we had, they, they brought me down to the, the president of the head of the hospital, like the CEO, and they said, uh, this is something that you can't publish. And I said, wait a few minutes. I have some, something I want to show you. And I went to my apartment, which was right across from the hospital, right, right there. And I ran, out, ran up as fast as I can go as a sprinter. <laughs> and I went to my apartment. I brought back with me a piece of paper. And I said, if this was your idea and your work, how come I have a patent on this? I had actually applied for a patent, and it was accepted. The head of the hospital looked at me, and, and, they, and the surgeons stepped back, sat back, and said, took deep breaths, and said, okay, then you must have been your idea to begin with. And it was just one of those aha moments <laughs> that I, I just applied for a patent just because, uh, you know, who knows? You know, somebody's going, it's a good idea. Let's do it. And, and uh, sure enough, I got a patent on it, and I published that paper. And it took off from that point on. It taught me a lot the process of what it takes to get ideas going and how, unfortunately, one has to sidestep the establishment and work your way in and out in order to be able to do this. And the graft uh, was, uh, was eventually very, very successful, and it is um, still probably the best graft in the world, though it's very difficult because of the business world and how people do it in competition. So I'm not involved with that anymore at this point. Yeah. Could I just interject here? Because this is classic, classic hero's journey stuff. And another quote from Campbell comes to mind, which fits this situation and Irv's actions perfectly, where Campbell talks to, is the system going to flatten you out and deny you your humanity? Or are you going to be able to make use of the system to the attainment of human purposes? Well, that's clearly what Irv is doing. And it's just incredible the magic that surrounds Irv on his journey, how in 1971, George Robinson, chief of cardiac surgery, had mentored Irv and said, 
file a patent about this idea. And so in 1975, he was totally protected and prepared and could overcome any reticence about or refusal to the call. And it's, it's just incredible to see how all the ingredients of the hero's adventure were fermenting in the alchemical cauldron of Irv's early life, allies who became enemies and yet mentors who saved the day. And I was going to say that it's a tough thing when you face that sort of betrayal. Oh, my God, yeah. You know, a betrayal that Dr. Dardick himself was recipient of when they tried to suggest that the work and the theories belong to them. That is another enormous inspirational message, is it not? Totally. And, you know, the, the, the solution to betrayal is to remember the words of Anne Rand, that these people aren't betraying you, they're betraying their own souls, and not to take it personally, as Irv clearly didn't. Let's move on in the journey, if we may, in the meeting of the mentor. This is, of course, where the hero meets the mentor to gain advice and or training for the adventure. For Susan Anthony, can you briefly explain the reasoning for the position of this step um, in the journey uh, versus perhaps uh, following instead before the refusal of the call? You know, the map is chronological on paper in black and white, but in reality, it's different parts of the map are happening at the same time. And my experience has been the refusal of the call and the meeting the mentor normally come together mm. because the mentor is then able to um, give advice to the hero in training and inspire him not to give up or protect him somehow in the way that George Robinson, chief of cardiac surgery, had managed to persuade Irv to get his patent. At this point, Dr. Dardick, would you tell us how you came to found the U.S. Olympic Sports Medicine Council, perhaps with some relevance to this stage of the hero's journey in terms of who were your mentors who were firmly behind you as it were at this stage that you remember and were profoundly important to you in retrospect the ever since i went through medical school and my residency internship and residency i continued to work out to run and do my sprinting. I never went into the distance running. I continued to work out, and um, and then um, once I, I became a physician for the Maccabea Games, uh, the United States team that went to the Maccabea Games. I knew some of these people who were um, 
uh, involved at the top level in the Maccabea games, and they um, they knew that I had been through medicine and as well as having been a runner, and so they were looking for physicians, and they asked me to be one. And I went to the Maccabea games years after I had myself competed at them in 1957. I went back a good uh, 10 years later, at this time, and uh, they asked me to be a physician. And what happened was, they asked me uh, I, as a physician. I was working out with the uh, with the athletes. One of the athletes was injured, and they asked me to the head. They asked. They were trying to find somebody to take his place. And they looked at me working out with the athletes, and I hadn't run in competition for ten years or so. And they said, "You know, why don't you run the lead leg in the mile, in the uh, mile relay, sixteen hundred meter relay?" meter relay and and uh, I was kind of shocked because I said well are you kidding they said no if you can come in 10 yards behind the um, the last guy on this relay we have three great runners they'll make up the distance and so I actually I said okay let's go for it and I took the lead leg and I actually came in 10 yards ahead and Irv Kentish, who was then the coach, was the guy. He, 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 he was, it was unbelievable. He was the head track coach from NYU. And he said, to, he, when I finished, and he said, he, I had everybody sign, you know, the baton and him, and we got the gold medal. And I was thrilled. I ran a pretty good time, 49-1, which is not bad for 400 meters after you've not been running for so many years. And I ended up... Um, uh, they ended up, uh, Earth Kent just sent me uh, his baton, the baton years later uh, as he, uh, he was very ill and dying, and he asked that they send it to me, the baton, and I have it here. But it's, it was quite an experience, and through that, the people began to know and heard about me at the U.S. Olympic Committee. Mainly, Kenley Albright, who was an Olympic champion in figure skating in 1954, uh, 56 rather, and um, she is, uh, became a physician herself. And as an MD, an Olympic champion, and she was on the Olympic board, um, she asked that I be appointed a physician at the Montreal Olympic Games in 1976. And I went there. Now, once you're appointed, you're never appointed again, because for this, is, it's like having a, it's, it's a, for a physician to become a, a doctor at the Olympics, usually orthopedics, uh, and I was a vascular surgeon. But orthopedics, they, it is like a dream come true. And you, you don't get to go to the winter and summer, no less the Pan American Games and the next Olympics. Well, they asked me to be at the Games, and they asked me questions about how I would work with the um, – uh, athletes and what we're doing. They called me in after the uh, Montreal Games, uh, the, the um, uh, Winter uh, Pan American Games first, and then they called me back for the uh, Winter Games, uh, and then again uh, for the uh, Summer Games. And I was stunned, and what why I was being reappointed. And they called me in after each one, and then after the final uh, games uh, in in uh, 1976. 
they they asked me for my opinion, and I said to them, "I think we need an Olympic training center. We have major crises internationally with the with the East Germans and the Russians, the drugs in sports, the Iron Curtain, uh, West, the uh, you know the free world versus the um, the communist world. It was a major issues." And I said, "You know, our athletes are training in a very disorganized way, in a sense, because they were they're they're all over the country. We need a central core where we." We can bring athletes and work with them and help them find who they are so that they can be the best they can be and ho- and avoid the use of drugs. And that was the beginning. I met with uh, Bill Simon, who was the Secretary of Treasury under uh, Nixon uh, before, and he was a wonderful president, uh, became president of the USOC, um, Colonel F. Don Miller, we, and we decided uh, together as a small team uh, to set up the uh, training center at uh, Colorado Springs, the first U.S. Olympic uh, training center, and they asked me to set up the first Olympic Sports Medicine, the United States Olympic Sports Medicine Council, of which I then was, of course, appointed as chairman by the president. And um, we began to bring in the different scientists from exercise physiology, nutrition, sports psychology, biomechanics, bring in scientists to work with the elite athletes. And uh, it was extraordinary to me to see how they were working all these different specialties, just like in medicine. Everybody was an expert in their own field, but when you find you're trying to get a neurologist to speak to a cardiologist, they're in different worlds. They develop a different language. It's like a tower of Babel with all these people together, trying to get them these different scientists in sports medicine, sports science, to work together. And so it, it was a struggle trying to think, figure out, is there a common language? Is there some coherence? Can there be some resonance between everyone so we can work together? Uh, and uh, that was the beginning of uh, the Olympic Sports Medicine Council. I wrote the bylaws for the Congressional uh, for Congress so that the USOC was appointed the head of all amateur sports, the governing body for all amateur sports in the United States. And I spent um, a good, uh, all together with the Olympics, some uh, almost 15 years. <laughs> I have a smile on my face, Susie, thinking we may have to take this to a 10-hour program at this rate. To the fifth stage in the journey, uh, crossing the first threshold, where the hero leaves the ordinary world and travels to what Campbell terms the special world. Before I come to you, Dr. Dardick, uh, Susan Anthony, talking to Campbell and his position in this area. In looking at uh, life and researching and preparing for the program today, I was mapping it out to see how it fit the template of the hero's journey, and I feel that Irv's crossing into the special world was probably um, connected to the sudden and tragic death of his friend, Olympic rower Jack Kelly, brother to Princess Grace of Monaco. So my question to Irv would be, how did Jack Kelly's untimely and tragic death at a young age, in a so-called state of peak fitness, guide you, Irv, away from the more conventional allopathic medical route in the ordinary world, and ultimately catapult you into the special world of visionary scientific discoveries and superwave resonance theory. Um, this was 
a an amazing experience, a, a difficult one, but so powerful because when I was in my uh, in 1984 um, at the Olympic Games, and this was in Los Angeles, and I remembered working out with Jack Kelly when I was, uh, you know, and I, here I was ready to, and Jack Kelly had just become president of the USOC for the 1985 to 88 games. Um, and uh, he reappointed me as chairman. And Jack and I and Allison, my wife, uh, used to work out when we were at the Olympic Games in Sarajevo in the Winter Games in previous years. And um, we used to run up and down the mountains together, but Jack would run it as a distance, and Allison and I would do sprints. We'd run faster, and then Jack would catch up to us <laughs> when we'd recover, and then we'd keep going. So we would run distances, almost like the same distance, but we would do it in sprints, and he would do it in a distance run. And it was kind of a fun thing that we were doing. Well, here suddenly, three weeks into Jack's, uh, Jack's uh, tenure as president of the United States Olympic Committee, and three weeks into my reappointment, Jack Kelly goes out for a long run and suddenly dies after the, uh, after the exercise. They found him afterwards. And this was obviously a shock of shocks, uh, stunning. How could it, uh, you know, first of all, it was, he was so close to us and to me, and he was um, a powerful athlete. He himself was a, a, a bronze medalist in rowing. He was for years training all the time. Why would somebody in that, in the peak of his health, he was 50 years old, how could this be possible for him to suddenly die? And um, I began thinking about it, and it suddenly struck me that the, that the first marathoner, Phidippides, some 2,600 years ago, <laughs> um, who, would, who was um, really the first marathon ever, you might say, because he was a messenger sent by the Greeks from uh, Marathon in Persia then, from Marathon to Athens to announce the victory of the Greeks over the Persians in a war. And he arrived some 26 miles or so later, that was the distance between them, the cities, and announced, victory is ours, victory is ours, and suddenly dropped dead. Well, here I said, how can we've been celebrating that marathon, we call it marathon now, but the first person who did that died afterwards. That doesn't make sense. Jim Fix, not too long before that, had also died, who had written the complete book of running. running the, 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 uh, the gold standard of books for running. And how could this possibly be? And, um, and I said, well, why did, you know, the thing that didn't make sense to me was the fact that they died during recovery. Why during recovery? Why do they die during exercise? I began thinking about it. Why did they die afterwards? Well, um, the, there's um, um, Ken Cooper, who was the father of aerobics, had written a book uh, called um, um, Running Without Fear. <laughs> 
And I said to myself, because of this, you know, how to run, how to train, because the belief was, and this was written in, up, as a matter of fact, in the AMA, American Medical Association Journal, um, that people who sit down after they exercise, when the blood vessels and the veins are dilated in the legs, the blood will pool in the legs and sit there, and not enough blood gets back to the heart and the brain or whatever, and you suddenly get a heart attack. And so uh, in this book, uh, Running Without Fear, and the title of which said to me, my gosh, why would you even have a book? Why would you have to have a book, How to Run Without Fear? It tells you there's, there's a problem here. And there is a chapter in there called The Great Cool-Down Danger, in which he describes the during the cool-down, the recovery period, the blood pooling in the legs. Well, I just didn't buy that. I said, that doesn't make sense to me. These athletes are training for years. Why should they suddenly not be adapted to being able to handle sitting down? That doesn't make sense. And I began thinking about what is it in recovery? Let's leave the, the pooling out of the picture for the moment. What is it in recovery? What is recovery from exercise? And it struck me like a, like a lightning. It was incredible. One of those, again, those epiphany, aha moments. When I realized that recovery from physical, the body's physical exercise is identical with the phenomenon of meditation, the relaxation response from anxiety, from arousal, from stress, when I realized that when you meditate, when you relax, your heart rate slows down, your blood pressure drops, your breathing slows down, your muscles relax, your stress hormones drop, they come down. Everything is in a phase of relaxation with meditation. Well, what happens when you stop exercising? Identical to meditation, to the relaxation response. Your heart rate slows down, your blood pressure um, it drops, your, your muscles relax, breathing, stress hormones, everything comes down. But even from a higher level, let's say from a heart rate 180, 160, whatever, it will come down to 70, 80, 70, 60. Well, Jack's heart rate at rest used to be, and everybody thinks this is a wonderful thing, having a rapid heart rate uh, recovery is a good thing for, from, uh, from a training point of view, and a low heart rate, his heart rate at rest was around 40, 40 beats per minute. That's low. Everybody thinks that's a wonderful thing back then and still do today. Well, I realized, wait a minute, when you're exercising, you're throwing your heartbeat up if you sit down and you haven't trained your recovery physiology the way you train exercise. The exercise for two hours, three hours of marathon-type running is like having a chronic panic attack. For three hours, why, and why would you want to continue training and exercise and, tr and recover for a few minutes, five, ten minutes? You, you, it is too much stress, not enough recovery. And so it, it needs to be done cyclically when I uh, realize that animals in the wild, you know, they, they, they do exercise in bursts. The cheetah does a burst and then recovers, a burst and then recovers. If they don't catch something in five or six, seven bursts, they don't, they don't go anymore. They wait till the next day. And the same thing goes for, for, my, for kids, little kids. They run around and they sit down. They run around and they sit down for short bursts. And then we send them to school and they run distances. They're told, okay, now run laps. Well, 
we were designed not only to exercise to recover the way that we were designed to be awake and asleep. It's a cycle. It's a wave. We need to train the sleep. We need to train relaxation. We need to use it the way we used to when we lived naturally in nature, within the rhythms of nature, with nature. We, our lives were dependent before civilization. All life is dependent on the rhythms of nature. It's a commonality at all scales through all living organisms. And here we're, we, I went to medical school and was trained in the material world of the body of, the, of life. The cell, the, the chemistry, the molecules, the organ systems, the whole organism. And the idea of rhythms and waves was kind of left, not kind of, it was out of the picture. It was no, there were no courses on this. They didn't exist. And the rhythms were secondary to the matter making ways which we always try to straighten out. Well, this whole concept was so powerful that I realized, my gosh, there is, we, we need to look at this life, nature, in a whole new way. I actually took a couple of uh, penta- few pentathletes and uh, triathletes, and I had them run who had heart- resting heart rates that were in their low 40s, just like Jack. And I had them run upstairs in a building, in a number of flights, reach the top and sit down so their heart rates would get up to 170, 180, whatever, at the, at the peak, sit down, and their heart rates drop precipitously, not just to 40, 30s and the high 20s, and I had them lie down, raise their feet, now I understand. It was like a, I call it a pendulum effect. A pendulum effect, which would be the same thing like somebody who takes drugs and overdose. You don't die in the high. You die in sleep. It's the other side of the wave. You have your high stress and then recovery, if you want to call it that, a a dive down below, and suddenly you can't pull out of the dive. Turning to you, Susan Anthony, would you like to respond to and comment on the journey thus far that Dr. Dardick has taken us on in winding down this first of our three programs. I'd be delighted and you know it's awe-inspiring stuff and I think if anyone deserves two programs it's, uh, it's amazing. What I would comment is Rabindranath Tagore said, the same stream of life that runs through my veins night and day runs through the world and dances in rhythmic measures. And what I, going on from what Irv has just explained, I would say failure to tackle the stress of psychological blocks resulting from early life emotional wounding interferes with the rhythm of these waves of living consciousness. Mm-hmm. And we cannot fully connect to the hero, to our divine nature within, or receive guidance, intuition, or guidance from the special world through spiritual disciplines alone, prayer, meditation, or even Reiki. We need another discipline, and this is one that's very seldom spoken to, and I speak to it all the time. We need to shed the skins of the past in order for our special hero lives to begin. And I teach that psychological recapitulation is really key here. And this helps us to confront denials, clear unwanted emotional baggage, 
by challenging irrational, exaggerated attitudes, beliefs, and expectations, too. And I show people how to replace self-limiting patterns of behavior with sensible, rational ones. And this improves emotions and makes for happier, easier, healthier, and more fulfilled lives so that these rhythmic streams of life force energy can run through us in harmony. And through practicing the same psychological and spiritual disciplines daily, we simultaneously we become powerful enough to take action to embody and create whatever we discover our higher purpose to be, as Earth has revealed. And it's the putting into action of our higher purpose that gives our lives greater meaning. And we feel increased self-worth and more powerful. And this is how we become our hero best selves. And to quote Proverbs, the foundation of wisdom is the selfless awe of God. Skeptics deny that this is so. And the ignorant ignore the disciplines that lead to it. But you need not be among them. That's a great way to finish. Well, for our listeners, that brings us to the end of this program with our special guest, Dr. Evan Dardick. In our next program, we'll be Entering the sixth level, tests allies and enemies. When the hero faces the tests, meets the allies and confronts the enemies and learns the rules of the special world. Dr. Dardick, Dr. Susan Anthony, thank you so very much for being on the program today. I certainly look forward to joining you in the next of our series. Thank you. And thank us. you, David. You've done a fantastic job. Thank you so job. much. Thank you very, People. very much. It's always a pleasure to be here. You are very welcome. And to our listeners today, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. We'll look forward to returning to this series very soon. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Dot com.